So for a number of weeks, we've been studying the book of Matthew, and, and this is one of the reasons, today's message is one of the reasons why I wanted to go through the book of Matthew relatively slowly. I usually go through books very quickly. I have never once had a message series last as long as this one. This is week 22, and I have never spoken in that length of time on any series. We've gone through Romans, we've gone through Genesis. I think Genesis took me 14 weeks to get through, and that's got 50 chapters. And I mean, we usually race through stuff, but I decided I wanted to go through some things in detailed fashion in the book of Matthew for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons really started at the very beginning. Do you remember? Matthew sat down, and in chapter 1, he gives us a genealogy of Jesus. He says, Jesus was the son of this, son of this, son of this, and he goes all the way back to Adam. And what's fascinating about, Je- about Matthew chapter 1 is that Matthew takes Jesus' genealogy of all of his you know, t- family tree, and he splits it up into three sections of 14. And he says there are 14 generations from Adam, Adam to Abraham, 14 from Abraham to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. And you're like, well, what does 14 mean? Well, we talked about it that very first week. 14 was the number of the word David in the Hebrew language. Because see, in the Hebrew language, they didn't have numerals. And so they would use the alphabet to refer to different numbers. And if if you took the name David, it added up to the number 14. And so people in Matthew's day thought that David, the great king, was symbolized by the number 14. It was a double seven. It was cool, all that stuff. But Jesus is three times better than David because Jesus had three 14s. Now, the reason I mention that is that you need to remember today that Matthew, one, knew his Old Testament. Matthew 2 was a super nerd about the Old Testament. Matthew number 3 wanted you to know that there are some things buried in the Old Testament that tell us something bigger and better than anything you might have heard before. And so as Matthew is telling us about Jesus, he is telling us that Jesus is a king who's better than David, three times better than the great King David. But he's also going to tell us that Jesus is a king unlike anything you've ever expected. In fact, Jesus is a king who is going to regularly rub you the wrong way. Jesus is a king who is going to regularly disappoint you because Jesus is the king who will not do kingship the way we people do kingship. We want a bully on our side to call the king. Someone that we can say, okay, he's going to fight my battles, he's going to win the war, he's going to give me security, he's going to give me safety. I want the person who's on my side to be the strongest. And Jesus regularly is the one who tells us that he is for the losers. He cheers for the losers. He elevates and welcomes his enemies. There's nothing about Jesus' kingdom that is what we thought we wanted. And so it raises the question for us. Are you willing to follow the greatest king of all time, even though his kingdom is the opposite of what you want? Or would you rather follow a kingdom that is exactly what you want and happens to be ruled by a king who is not the greatest king of all time? What do you want? Do you want your own kingdom or do you want the greatest king? And that's the dilemma we've been looking at throughout this whole study. And today, we come face to face again with this idea of the king that I want is different from the king that Jesus is. And so like I've done many other weeks, I'm going to give you the punchline first. The punchline for our study is this, that Jesus hates it, and I'm using that word intentionally, he hates it when the insiders keep the outsiders out. He hates it when the insiders keep the outsiders out. Flip with me to Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. It says this, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If any of you have been in churches for 
more than one Easter, you probably also experienced Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And that's the Sunday that we take this passage usually and we celebrate this passage on Palm Sunday. This is Jesus. He is getting the people to give him a donkey so he can ride on this donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And while he does so, people are going to be waving palm branches. You know the story. We haven't read it yet, but you know the story. People are going to be waving palm branches and all this stuff. And Matthew does this thing where he quotes an Old Testament passage just so that you know that he knows that there is a backstory to this experience. Here's the problem. You and I generally read Matthew's quotations and not the original passage. And so I'm going to give you a little disclaimer here before we go farther today. I'm going to be reading a lot of Old Testament passages. And I'm going to tell you that the Old Testament passages we look at today, because Matthew is going to quote a lot of Old Testament passages in this passage, but I'm going to let you know that the Old Testament passages teach something different than Sunday school taught me about this passage. If I read this passage in Matthew just as it stands, the people, and I'm talking about everything we look at today, The people who taught me Sunday school gave me a particular impression of this passage that is actually not consistent with the Old Testament verses that Matthew quotes. So we've got a couple options. Either Matthew doesn't know the Old Testament and we should take the Sunday school answers for this particular passage, or Matthew does know the Old Testament and he is intentionally dropping out pieces that he doesn't like because he's trying to prove a different point in the New Testament. Or Matthew knows the Old Testament and he knows his hearers know the Old Testament. He knows that these people are able to decode the number 14 and the word David and so they must also be super Jews. And so he is only quoting the portion of the New Testament that is obvious in the New Testament story but leaving the rest of it to the person who understands the Old Testament to find it for himself. And I lean in that direction. The problem is that as we read the Old Testament passages, you will find things that are different from the traditional understanding of this passage. So, let's go. Let's see what we find. Zechariah chapter 9, 9 is the verse that Matthew quotes. But we're going to start in verse 8. I'll put it up here on the screen. It says this. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. This is the voice of God speaking through the prophet Zechariah. I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from the sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Zechariah passage is interesting because it has the Messiah. It's God speaking, and he's talking about the Messiah who is going to enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now, that's interesting because, see, when I was younger, no one ever explained to me what the significance of the donkey was. Uh, Jesus riding on a donkey, you know, if, if you're the king, you ride a stallion, don't you? If you're a really significant person, you ride a really significant animal. It doesn't make sense that anyone would ride a donkey. And so that was just sort of skirted over that part in my Sunday school lessons. It was Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a king. It was the triumphant entry. It wasn't the donkey ride. That's the way they referred to it. But this is important. The donkey ride is different from a horse ride because a horse is what you take into battle. No one ever takes a donkey into battle. In other words, the donkey is a symbol of there is no war, there is no battle, there is only peace. When does a king ride a donkey? Either 
when he has already won the war or there's no war at all to win. Now in Zechariah, this guy comes victorious, right? And he proclaims peace, right? In Zechariah, this Messiah is riding on a donkey because he doesn't need the horse because he has already fought the battle. He has already won. The question is when we get to the New Testament and Matthew is quoting this verse to talk about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's obvious that Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. It's obvious that Jesus knows this because he's the one who says, I'm getting into Jerusalem, I need a donkey. We're going to do this thing right. And so he gets the donkey, they're going to ride in and all that kind of stuff. But the question for for the Jewish people around Jesus has got to be two things. One, this is the Messiah moment. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the Zechariah 9-9 entering into Jerusalem. He's going to kick out the Ephraimites, whoever they are. You know, the Jewish people of that day might not remember who the Ephraimites are. He's going to get rid of the chariots. He's going to break the bow. He's going to declare peace. And, And on the one hand, you're thinking they're really super excited about this Messiah moment. But on the other hand, I'm sure they have questions. Questions like, but wait a minute, Jesus. The people in Jerusalem want to kill you. Why would you be riding in on a donkey? Or, but wait a minute, Jesus. The victory that we're supposed to win still hasn't been won. The Romans are still in charge of Jerusalem. King Herod is still in the palace. Jesus, if you're going to ride a donkey, shouldn't you already have the victory locked up? I'm imagining there's some confusion there. And so what they're thinking probably, this is the way I would be thinking, what they're thinking probably is, okay, well, maybe Jesus is riding in on the donkey to let us know it's Zechariah 9.9, but he's actually going to do the victory in Jerusalem. So once we get into Jerusalem, it's time for Jesus to let loose and to win the victory against the oppressors, right? I'm imagining that's probably what they're actually thinking. And so they're all excited. And the disciples are like, okay, yes, let's do this thing. Let's jump ahead back in Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And of course, the question is, well, why are they cutting down branches from the trees and spreading them on the road? Why are doing, we call it Palm Sunday because we picture all these people waving palm branches and putting palm branches on the road in front of Jesus. And what's the deal with all the cloaks in front? What's the deal with all the palm branches? And so as a kid, I was just always taught, well, it's just a red carpet. You know, they're just laying out the red carpet for Jesus. But then what's the deal with the waving of the bows if, if that's going on? Well, it just so happens in the Old Testament, there is a reference when then this passage is talked about in the Old Testament, there is a reference to bows from trees, from branches, from trees. It's in Psalm 118. And so let's go back there. Let me show you what Psalm 118 says. It says this, Lord, save us. First of all, that's the word Hosanna. Hosanna is the Hebrew phrase for save us. Hosanna is not the Hebrew phrase for we praise you. Hosanna is the Hebrew phrase for save us. So when they say Hosanna, they are quoting Lord save us from Psalm 118. Lord grant us success. That's not a quote when in the New Testament they're not quoting anything Lord give us success. What they're quoting is they're quoting the idea of here's the king who's going to come and give success to the people. Here's the king who's going to give success to his people, right? We always want the king to give us success. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's the quote. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. 
So they get the branches from the trees because they are not just saying Hosanna. They are not just saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are reenacting Psalm 118 by picking up branches and saying, okay, join the procession. We're heading to the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar are um, the edges of the great altar where the sacrifice would happen in front of the temple. And so the sacrifice happens on the altar. The altar has bulls underneath it, and the bulls have horns. And so the horns of the altar are the horns of the bulls underneath the uh, altar where the sacrifice happens in front of the temple. They are saying, we're going to make a procession to the the sacrifice place. And so get your branches. We need something to burn. That's probably what they're saying here. Get the branches. We need something to burn. But anyway, get your branches. We're going to go. Matthew quotes this because the people obviously we're reenacting Psalm 118. Now, what's interesting here is that these people, if they're holding the branches, they must be thinking in their mind, what's next? This is the Savior, Hosanna. This is the King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Son of David. They are thinking to themselves, this is the messianic moment. What is coming next? Now, they've got a couple options. What should the Savior do? Well, the Savior who comes into the town should immediately start killing Romans. That's what the Savior should do. Remember, in the days of old, the word Savior a long, 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 long time ago in the Bible was sometimes translated as the word judge. There's a whole book in the Bible about it called the book of Judges. And these people in the old, old, old testament, when the oppressors were being so oppressive, the judge would show up and save the people by killing the oppressors. That's the way the Old Testament book of Judges works. And so if Jesus is the Savior, Hosanna, save us, son of David. If Jesus is the new judge, then he should come and start killing Romans. If Jesus is the king, If he's the new king, he should show up and go straight to the palace and kick that Herod guy out. If Jesus is the king, the son of David, you know, the one blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he should kick out King Herod. But then there's also that passage idea about going to the temple. Let me show it to you again in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 It says it twice. At the beginning, from the house of the Lord, we bless you. We're blessing you from the temple. And then at the bottom, with bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, which is in front of the temple. Psalm 118 is actually referring to the Messiah doing something at the temple. Oh, and it's not just Psalm 118. It was also in Zechariah 9. I don't know if you saw it, but it was also there. Take a look at it. Zechariah 9, 8. We'll put it up here. It says, But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I'm keeping watch. See, the base camp for the Messiah, according to these two passages, is the temple. I'm imagining the Messiah, messianic, moment-minded people in Jesus' day were thinking, let's kill some Romans. Or some of them were thinking, let's get rid of the, the king, Herod, you know, in that palace. But for those who were the super Jews, for those who really knew what was going on, for the real insiders, they might have known that the job of the Messiah is to go to the temple. And it's at the temple that we deal with the oppressors. It's at the temple that we start taking care of the marauding forces. It's at the temple that we start showing people who's boss. Some of you know the story and you know what happens next at the temple. But try to suspend that previous knowledge just for a moment and keep yourself in the moment of surprise because that is exactly what Jesus does next. Uh, Let's read it. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Wow, a prophet from Nazareth. That's unbelievable. A prophet from Galilee. That's unbelievable. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts. Yes, it's going, it's starting, it's happening. And drove out all who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This, I gotta tell you, is backwards from what they expected. See, Jesus was supposed to go to the temple and kick out the oppressors. Jesus was supposed to go to the temple and kick out the marauding forces, right? Jesus was supposed to go to the temple and sacrifice at the altar and inaugurate a brand new thing that he was going to do. By the way, the temple was built in a multitude of courts. There was an outer court and there was an inner court. And the altar was in the inner court. And so if you wanted to bring the bows from the branches, you had to go all the way to the inner court. That's where the altar was. That's where the horns of the altar was. And only men and only Jewish men were allowed in that courtyard area. And so if there were any children, if there were any women, they wouldn't make it into that inner court area. And so the people wanted Jesus not just to be for the insiders. He wanted to go all the way to the deepest part of the inside. But what Jesus does is he stays on the outside, the outer courts, the court where the women and the Gentiles and the children could be. He stays on the outer court and he's supposed to get rid of the opposing forces. He's supposed to get rid of the oppressive forces. He's supposed to get rid of the marauders, but he kicks out Jewish people. You see, the only people who were allowed to do business in the outer court were the Jewish people. The only people who were allowed to deal with sacrificial, sacrificial animals were the Jewish people. And they had every right to do so. They had every reason to do so. In fact, my dad spoke on this passage just last week. And um, he, like every other in his church, and he, just like every other pastor that I have heard for most of my life, and every Sunday school lesson I have ever heard for most of my life, talked about this passage in the same basic traditional way. It goes like this. Jesus had two problems with the people in the temple courts. Problem number one, they were doing merchandising in the church. They were doing commerce in the place that was supposed to be for prayer. That makes sense. Jesus said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, right? And so the problem was they were doing business in the place of prayer. It was the commerce, it was the business, because commerce and business, that's considered to be secular, not sacred, not spiritual. And so by doing something secular in that place, you were doing something that was normal, average, everyday, secular, in a place that was supposed to be spiritual. That's the first thing that they say Jesus had a problem with. The second thing they say Jesus had a problem with is that the money changing always would have involved some sort of shaving off the top for the money changers because that's the way money changing works. When you transfer a dollar to a franc or a a euro to a pound, in the transfer, the middleman is always going to take a small cut. That's the way it works. It's the way business works. The middleman always takes a cut. And so Jesus was speaking against the impropriety of the money changers who were sort of stealing from their fellow Jews by doing this money changing thing. That's the standard party line traditional story. I don't agree with it. And you know why I don't agree with it? Because of all the stuff in the Old Testament. Let me show you. First of all, in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we read this with regard to the tithe. God says to the people, every year you're supposed to bring 10% of all of your income to Jerusalem. There's a problem. If you're a farmer, 10% of your income might be hard to carry all the way to Jerusalem. And so God says this, if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. It was the rule in Deuteronomy. It was the rule that if you wanted to go to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, you could, in fact, sometimes you should, transfer your sacrifice to cash, carry the cash with you to Jerusalem, and then exchange the cash for another sacrificial animal. And someone had to sell you that sacrificial animal, right? 
Someone had to sell that sacrificial animal, and it just so happened that a good, convenient place to sell a sacrificial animal would be in the area where the sacrifices were to happen, right? It makes perfect sense. And so why not set up a little booth right there outside the inner courts of the temple so that you could sell a sacrificial animal? In Deuteronomy, God lays it down as the thing they can do, and in some cases, the thing they should do. And so the people were just following God's rule. Number two, take a look at this one in Leviticus 27. It says this, Every value is to be set according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 geras to the shekel. What that means is the shekel was a unit of weight, which was also a unit of money. A unit of weight can be used as a unit of money because it's reliable. So a shekel of silver would be a standard amount of silver. Now here's the problem. In ancient times, it was hard to standardize because no one had scales that were electronic and precisely calibrated. And so the only way for you to know whether or not your thing was actually a shekel or not is to weigh your thing against another thing that is actually a shekel. And so standardization of units and measures is common in any good society. And so God did it too. He, in, he said, we're going to have a standard shekel. This is the sanctuary shekel. And it's the thing that is always going to stay the same. Here it is. You're going to keep it at the sanctuary. And that'll be the standard. Okay, so now, if you have a whole bunch of silver and you need to figure out how much lamb I can buy with this silver, how much stuff can I buy with this silver, you have to compare your silver to the sanctuary shekel so that you know how many sanctuary shekels your silver is worth and that would let you know how much you can actually buy with it. In other words, what I'm saying to you is the money changing was required by God's law. Leviticus 27 tells us that every value has to be determined by the sanctuary shekel. The money-changing thing was required by God's law. Okay, so in God's law, the idea of changing things into money and then out of money, purchasing sacrificial animals, and the idea of exchanging your silver for sanctuary silver... Both of those things are in God's law. These people were obeying God's law. So is Jesus upset with the money changers? I don't think so. Is Jesus upset with the fact that they are purchasing animals? I don't think so. Both of those things were in God's law. These people were just obeying. So then the question is, why is Jesus upset? Why is he throwing a tantrum in the temple? Why is Jesus so upset by these people? Well, would you like to know it's also in the Old Testament? Jesus happens to quote a couple Old Testament passages here. And if we look them up, we might see what was on Jesus' heart and his mind as he is whipping the people and turning over the tables. It's in Isaiah 56. Take a look at this. Beginning in verse 6 and 7, it says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. There it is, house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There it is. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But maybe you missed just as much as the people of Jesus' day missed. And so I'm going to read it to you again. Go back to the beginning of it. And foreigners, okay, this whole context, first of all, is about non-Jewish people. The context is about the foreigners. And there's something about these foreigners that the prophecy wants us to know. The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him. These are foreigners who choose to be worshipers. Foreigners who say, I know he's the Jewish God, but he's also God. And so I'm going to worship the Lord myself. They choose to minister to him, bind themselves to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. They keep the Sabbath without desecrating it. They hold fast to God's covenant. They're foreigners, but they're getting it right. These, God says, I will bring to my holy mountain, which by the way, 
just for a moment, file in the back of your mind the words holy mountain. File in the back of your mind that Jesus is talking about a passage where God is saying, I'm going to bring foreigners to a mountain. There's something about a mountain that might show up later in this passage. Something that might be interesting to us in a few moments and help us to understand in a few moments what Jesus might be talking about when he uses the word mountain later on. Because Isaiah 56 talks about the temple being on the holy mountain. And, go to the next one, give them joy in my house of prayer. On the holy mountain is the house of prayer. And these people are going to have joy. Why? Because their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus says, the foreigners, the outsiders, or Isaiah said it first, the foreigners, the outsiders, who bind themselves to God, who get it right, are going to be brought into the temple. Their sacrifices will be accepted because my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Interestingly enough, the word nations in the Greek is sometimes translated with a capital G as the word Gentiles. It's the same Greek word. Sometimes translated nations, sometimes translated Gentiles. Foreigners, in Isaiah 56, will come into the temple and their sacrifices will be accepted because my house is a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is upset because something is going on in the temple of his day that is wrong according to Isaiah 56. See what's going on? These people are following Deuteronomy. These people are following Leviticus. And they're doing it in absolutely the most convenient way possible. Where better to buy a sacrifice than in the courts around the temple? Where better to exchange your money than where you're going to buy the sacrifice? I mean, these are the two essential components of religious Judaism. It's just religious people doing religious stuff. I mean, God commanded it. It's religious people doing religious stuff for religious reasons to help other religious people get their religious stuff done. It's Jewish people who are providing Jewish services to other Jewish people so that those other Jewish people can get their Jewish religious stuff done. Jewish people serving Jewish people for Jewish reasons. Religious people serving religious people for religious reasons. That's what's going on here. But you know what's not going on? I did tell you that the inner inner court was for Jewish men only. And the outer court was for women and children and Gentiles. You've got to realize the closest a Gentile could ever get to the temple of God, the closest they could ever get to the altar of God, pragmatically speaking, was in this outer court called the court of the Gentiles. The very place where the religious people were doing religious things for other religious people to serve their religious needs. I declare to you that Jesus was upset in this moment, not because the temple was being used for commercial purposes, not because the temple had some sort of you know, impropriety happening with the money changing. I claim to you that Jesus was upset in this moment because the people who were the insiders, the temple was operating under practices of prejudice and exclusion. The religious insiders were using this courtyard to do their religious insidery games. They were doing their religious stuff for religious reasons, for religious purposes, for religious people. And all of the outsiders who might have come in couldn't because it was clogged with the people who thought they belonged there. They couldn't pray because the commerce was so distracting How would you feel if you had traveled all the way from Persia to Jerusalem because you had heard the stories about Yahweh of old, the God of the burning bush, the God of the Egyptian plagues, and you were coming to Israel because you had finally decided you were going to make a pilgrimage 
to this city, Jerusalem, and celebrate the Passover, which was coming up this week, along with God's people. And you had traveled all this way, and you come into the place, and they say, sorry, you can only go this far. You cannot go any farther. And you're like, okay, that's fine. I understand I'm not a Jew. I'm coming from a long ways away. I understand there are certain requirements that people probably have. There are certain requirements that God probably has. And so I know I can only go this far. And then you are in the outer courts and you're preparing yourself to just experience the presence of God and spend some time in prayer and maybe hear through the wall a sacrifice happening on the other side and maybe get a glimpse of a priest doing the sacrifice. But everything around you is just... Jewish religious people doing their Jewish religious thing. A cacophony of sheep and goats and people bartering and arguing and claiming that they know how much this thing weighs or how much it's worth. As an outsider, would you have felt in? No. And I know people would say, oh, but wait a minute, Jeff. No, no, no. You're, too, you're interpreting too much based on the Old Testament. You're taking the Old Testament passage and you're applying it to the New Testament situation. Jesus is just quoting a line. This is really just about commerce. It's really just about thievery. After all, didn't Jesus say that they were turning it into a den of robbers, right? That's the thing. No, Jesus is talking about a den of robbers. So Jeff, keep your mouth shut about the racism. Keep your mouth shut about the injustice and prejudice and exclusivism of that thing. And just don't, don't address that because that's not appropriate. Jesus called them a den of robbers, right? That's the alternative. Okay, I'll one-up you on that. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, where the passage about the den of robbers is quoted from. Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. It says, will you steal and murder? Okay, stealing. There it is, right at the, it's at the very beginning. Okay, the people are stealing. Will you, this is God speaking to the people of Israel in judgment. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a a den of robbers to you? But have I, I have been watching, declares the Lord. See, here's the thing. That den of robbers passage, I could spend 10 minutes going through the translation of the word robbers to support my case here. But I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is focus on the fact that that verse we just looked at is not about the robbery at all. It's about the den. The verse was, these people are doing all their wicked things. They're worshiping Baal. They're being unkind to the people around them. They're being vicious. They're just being bad human beings, and they're not following God. And then they run over to the temple, and they say, oh, but here we're safe. We're safe here. And that's when God shows up and he says, is my house a den of robbers? The emphasis is not on their robbery or their behavior or whatever else it was that they were doing. The emphasis is on the fact that they were treating the house of God like it was their safe place. The house of God is the place where no one can get them. The house of God is the place where they can say, oh no, we're, we're safe here. They already are robbers. They were treating God's house like their den. That's the problem. They were taking up the space in God's house as if it really was theirs. And Jesus, I imagine, would say, who do you think you are, thinking this is your house. This is not your house. This is not your den. This is my father's house. And my father gave this part of the house to the Gentiles. My father gave this part of the house to them. And so he kicks them out. And here is the scariest part of it all. I'm going to show you Zechariah 9, 8 one more time. It says this. I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I'm keeping watch. In Jesus' story, 
Who are the oppressors? But the Jewish people who are using the outer court, which didn't belong to them, as if it did. They were taking their religious privilege, their religious perspective. They were following God's law. Oh, yes, they were, but they were following God's law in the way that was most convenient to them and not at all convenient to the people who were supposed to be worshiping there, supposed to be praying there, the outsiders, the Gentiles. And that means that Jesus is treating the insiders as the oppressors. And that's why he kicks them out. Because God's house is for the foreigner too. The house of God isn't just for the insiders. It's for the foreigners as well. All of the passages that we've been looking at from the Old Testament, I find entirely fascinating because all of the Old Testament passages put together tell one very clear story that the New Testament story fits in perfectly. If you ignore all the Old Testament passages, then you just have a New Testament story that looks like it's just a bunch of people who are doing the wrong things in church. And so let's get rid of the, the wrong people doing the wrong things in church and let's get back to a pure and holy you know, church experience thing that's really just for the church people. But no, what Jesus does is he says those people who are the insiders are sometimes the oppressors. And the people who are the insiders sometimes need to get kicked out because other people need to be in. To prove the point, we come to the next part of the story. After Jesus kicks out all these people, verse 14, it says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. And he healed them. Pause. Blind people were not allowed in the temple. They were stained by their disfigurement. They were not allowed to enter in. Lame people were not allowed to go into the temple. They were restricted from being in the temple. But these people ignore the rules, come into the temple, and Jesus heals them. He says, guess what? You're in the temple now, you're in my temple now, and boom, you're accepted. And boom, I will solve your problem so that you can stay. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Now, of course, why are they indignant? Maybe they're indignant because of the messianic yelling of the children. Because the messianic statement, Hosanna to the son of David, could get them into trouble with Rome. Rome might say, oh, wait a minute, we hear messianic stuff. We're going to start killing people. And so maybe the, the Jewish people are worried about the messianic statement. No, I don't exactly think so. I think they're more worried about the fact that children are making noises. Because you know children. They're supposed to be neither seen nor heard. Maybe sometimes seen. No, that's the the script of the day. But you've seen Jesus all the time. He welcomes the little children to him. I think these people were probably upset at just hearing children at all. But verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, I love that. Jesus is like, sure do. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And then that passage. It's another quotation. It's another Old Testament quotation. And so I'm going to give it to you because it's just so funny. Psalm 8, verse 2, says this. You have taught little children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Jesus is looking at these teachers of the law. He's looking at these chief priests and these scribes, and he says to them, oh yeah, have you ever read the passage where, Jesus ta- where, where God talks about the, the praises of the children? That's the passage that is supposed to shut people like you up. I love it when Jesus looks at a person and just basically tells them, you know, just keep, keep your mouth shut for a little while longer. You don't know what you're talking about. Everything that's going on here is about the outsiders being allowed to finally come in. 
and God, from the foreigners, from the children, from the lame, from the blind, from anyone, God will receive worship from anyone. So this is the part that I'm kind of scared of. Um, luckily, I don't have any time to get into it. Yesterday, I was thinking there were a couple issues that I really wanted to talk about, and I spoke to Jen, my wife, and she's like, don't talk about those issues. Instead, give a whole list of issues. And I said, okay, we'll do that one. That's, that's easier. I'll bury all of, the, all of the things together into a big list. But here's the question. If you're a Christian, then as far as God is concerned, you're an insider. You're here at church, so in some respect, you're an insider. If you're here at church and you feel like you're probably supposed to be here at church, you're an insider. If you're here at church and you feel relatively comfortable that you're here in church, you're an insider. We're insiders together. The question is, if we're the insiders, are we also participating in this bigger picture worship of God, or are we, like the insiders of old, doing something to keep the outsiders out? That's a really hard question for us to answer. So I made a list. I made a list of some things that I think uh, insiders do, religious people do, that keep outsiders out. I'll start with the easy ones. Religious people can expect the people who come into their group to wear fancy clothing. When we expect people to wear fancy clothes, that's one of the things that keeps outsiders out. Now, I'm happy to see that most of you around here are not wearing fancy clothing. I'm happy to see we don't have a whole lot of really grandiose outfits happening in this room. And you should know that I'm comfortable with things like jeans and polos and sometimes even shorts on a Sunday. I'm not going to go that far myself, but you know, I'm not going to judge anyone else. But anyway, so here's the deal. When people, when we first moved to town and we started sending out postcards, letting people know we were starting a new church, do you want to know one of the first questions we got asked when people would call the phone number on the postcard? They would say, say, what do I have to wear when I come to church? Now, luckily, you know, it's years and years later. We don't really have that much worry anymore, but there's still some people, some churches, some environments where someone might say, no, you got to wear fancy clothes. And you know what? That just keeps outsiders out because maybe they can't afford, maybe they don't want to, maybe they haven't been raised in church with certain expectations. And so if everybody's wearing a suit and tie and someone walks in in shorts and a t-shirt, they're going to be like, I don't feel comfortable around here. And they might just turn right around and walk away. Another thing that religious people do that keeps outsiders out is when we fail to explain what we're doing and why. Listen, there are a lot of Bible metaphors. There's this one metaphor um, in this one song that sometimes you guys have heard, uh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Uh, There's a bridge in there that says that God uh, chases down the 99. And uh, one of the questions that you might ask is, um, what's the problem with that? And one of the answers I would give you is that how many people from the outsider world would have any idea of why God would be chasing 99? Uh, why would he be leaving 99 and chasing down whatever he's chasing down? Um, it's, this, it's this picture that Christians know, insiders know, that the good shepherd leaves 99 sheep in the fold to go after the one who's lost. But a non-Christian isn't going to know that. Um, I've heard songs talking about the Rose of Sharon. I've heard songs talking about uh, swing wide, you gates. Uh, and it's like, okay, what, when Christians don't explain what we're doing, outsiders can feel like outsiders. Let's keep going. Another time is when we fail to welcome and befriend newcomers. If you're a newcomer in our church, we don't want you to stand up and announce your middle name to everybody. What we want you to do is interact with people. We want to befriend people. We want to have friendships going on in this place. And when we fail to do that, we keep the outsiders out. Here's another one. When churches with lots of money ask for more money, that keeps the outsiders out. They're like, I don't, I don't want to be part of that thing. They're just going to ask me for my money, and I don't think they need it. Or here's another one. When churches with loads of people don't do anything to make life better for loads of people. I don't know if I want to be around all those people. They're not making life better for the other people. 
That's one of the things that might keep... Now, we don't have those problems. We don't have lots of money, and we don't have lots of people. You know? and so, so right now, we don't have a lot of those judgments against us, but there are a couple that I want to talk about that might connect with us. Here's just a few. When Christians pass judgment on non-Christians. I want to be very clear about this. If a Christian tells a non-Christian that their sexual behavior is wrong, the Christian has skipped a step. What the Christian should be doing, the Christian should be telling the non-Christian that there is a Jesus who loves them and will forgive them from anything they've ever done and that you are ready to be their friend along the way. It's only later on, down the journey, down the road, when the person says, you know what, I am ready to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that you can then say, well, the kingdom has a few laws in it. The kingdom has a few rules in it. But until a person is in the kingdom, they're not bound by the rules. So when a Christian judges a non-Christian, that just keeps the outsiders out. And it reminds them that they've got no reason to come in. Here's another one. When Christians attach Christianity to a political platform or social policy. No, I'm not saying you can't have an opinion about a political platform or a social policy. What I'm saying is wrong is anytime a Christian acts as if their Christianity is the reason why they support this particular political platform or social policy. And basically, I'm not going to go too deep into that right now. I want to say a couple things in just a moment, but I'll give you this third one here. The third one is when Christians broadcast disdain or ignorance to the world around them. That's another thing that keeps the outsiders out. I use the word broadcast particularly because we live in a social media age where a Christian can tell the whole world what they think and why they think it. And one of the problems with doing so is that when a Christian tells the whole world what they think and why they think it, that Christian sometimes acts as if it's their Christianity that is causing them to have this opinion. And then what they're doing is they're attaching this Christianity to a thing that is not about Jesus and then also broadcasting that out as a Christian representative of those things. I'll just quickly say a few things about that. Um, Do you realize that Christians are way more likely, statistically speaking, way more likely to believe the earth is flat, to deny climate change, to disregard public health measures, to um, believe that the election was stolen, and to believe a whole host of other sorts of things. And I'm talking statistically, Christians are more likely to be any of those things, including being QAnon supporters and all that other stuff. Christians are more likely. Now, maybe you're hearing me say that if you think those things, you can't be a Christian. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that for some reason, and I don't know all the answers, for some reason Christians are more likely to fall into all of these different camps for some reason. But here's the thing. Not one passage in the Bible or anything Jesus said has anything to do with denying climate science, rejecting public health measures, or any of these other things that I mentioned. Not one thing in the Bible, not one thing in Christianity relates to any of those things. And so when a Christian goes on social media or in their family circles and begins to act like there's something about their Christianity that has connected them to this particular thing, then they are giving Jesus a bad name. My wife um, works in a highly technical industry. She's a software engineer. And there was a period of her career where only two people on the planet knew a particular thing that happened inside a computer when a programming language gets turned into a program. Only two people. Jen was one of them. The guy who invented it was the other one. My wife was the other one. And she had to learn what was going on because her company wanted to do stuff with that stuff. Now, listen, I could try to explain it to you guys, 
but that wouldn't work because I can't explain it to myself. All I'm trying to say is my wife is pretty bright, okay? She's pretty smart. She knows what's up. She knows what's going on. So she's working with these other guys who are incredibly technical, guys with PhDs and all this kind of stuff. She's working with these other guys, and one day, a couple years ago at lunch, she lets slip that I, by the way, they already know that her husband is a pastor. They already know that we came to this town to get this church started. They already know some of these things. And she lets slip during lunch one of these days that I have been watching and criticizing and making fun of flat earth YouTube videos. Okay, she lets that slip. And the guys at the table around her do this. (gasps) Oh, we're so glad to hear that you're not one of those people. See, they knew she was a Christian. They knew she was smart. They knew she was good at her job. But they also thought that maybe because she was a Christian, she was also one of those flat earthers, people who believe the earth is flat. Why in the world? Well, it's because statistically speaking, Christians are far more likely to believe that the earth is flat, far more likely to reject science in lots of different ways. Uh, And as a matter of fact, the the people who were online promoting flat eartherism were also simultaneously saying it was from the Bible and promoting their own Christianity alongside. There were many flat earthers who ended their videos by saying, come to Jesus, he will save your soul. And so the connection between the flat earth theory and Christianity was so strong in these guys' lives that for however many years, I don't even know, but for however long it was, they knew the smart woman who was working with them was one of those people. And probably one of those, those people. And it was such a relief to learn that, yeah, she was a Christian. Yeah, she went to church. Yeah, her husband was a pastor. But yeah, she also didn't follow some of this other stuff. Here's the point. We as Christians have an uphill battle to go when it comes to reaching the world around us for Jesus. And as a church, we have an uphill battle to go when it comes to reaching the people around us for Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you to join me in three specific things. Three specific questions I want you to join me in asking yourself as a way of making sure we insiders don't keep outsiders out. Here's question number one. Have I attached anything to my Christianity that is not actually Christ-like? If you have an opinion, that's fine. You can have an opinion that doesn't show up in the Bible. I'm not going to tell you all the opinions that you can have and can't have. What I'm going to say here is that don't attach it to your Christianity if it doesn't look like Jesus. We cannot attach anything to our Christianity if it doesn't look like Jesus. Number two, the next one. Am I presenting myself to an unbelieving world as unwelcoming? Am I presenting myself to an unbelieving world as I've got all my stuff together and you don't, and so I'm just going to tell you what's going on. I'm just a mic drop Christian, constantly dropping little mic bombs on other people saying, ah, here's one more reason why I'm better than you. Do I come across as a person who is welcoming? And number three... Is our church doing the work of welcome? I think the answer, I think to answer that third one is currently no. We are not doing much to welcome the outsiders. But we're planning on making October a month of major welcome. And so as we ask these questions of ourselves, we are preparing for that day. Okay. I've taken up a ton of your time today. But this passage ends with just a few quick little things that round the whole story out. There's just one problem. It's also scary. So let's do it fast so we don't get too scared. All right? Here we go. It starts in verse 17. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Write this down. After this whole confrontation with the religious people doing their religious things in their religious places for religious reasons, and the outsiders being out, Jesus leaves. Jesus, the biggest insider of all, himself doesn't stay in the city. He goes outside the city to be elsewhere. Number two, verse 18. 
Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back into the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. And some people are like, Jesus, how petty are you? It didn't have fruit on it. Why did you curse it? Why did you cause it to wither? I mean, what's the point there? After all, it's springtime, isn't this? is Palm Sunday. It happens in the spring. You know, Easter happens around Passover. That's in the springtime. Figs don't grow on the trees in the springtime. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you so upset at the fig tree? You know, why are you being so petty or whatever, cursing a fig tree? Here's the point. Figs are interesting. Figs grow in male and female varieties on the same tree. There are male figs and there are female figs. The male figs grow first. The female figs grow later because of the flowers of the female flower get pollinated by the male flower, the male figs. And so as a result, the male figs grow first. We just don't eat them because they're not that good. They're edible. They just don't taste that good. And here's the deal. If you ever find leaves on a fig tree, the male figs are there too. That's the way it works. The male figs grow at the same time and the same rate as the fig leaves. It's later on that the female figs grow. So here's the deal. Jesus sees a tree and Matthew tells us it has tons of leaves on it, but no figs. The point is, this was one of those trees that was acting like everything was normal, but didn't have anything real. This was one of those trees that had all the show of being a normal spring fig tree, but didn't actually have anything going on underneath. The best word for this is hypocrite. Jesus cursed a hypocritical fig tree. Because this was one of those trees that had everything on the outside going for it. But you lift that leaf and there's no fig underneath. He's like, I'm done with hypocrisy. I'm done with hypocrites. I'm done with this. And so, fig tree, you're done. And so the disciples are freaked out. They're like, okay, what's going on here? And so then Jesus says this, verse 20. It says this, the disciples saw this. They were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So many people take verse 22 all by itself, out of context. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer prayer. And so that becomes what I call the Ferrari passage. This is the passage that gives me permission to ask God for a Ferrari and to demand that he offer it to me because after all, it says it, I believe it, that settles it, right? And so I should be opening my door tomorrow to a Ferrari. Now, these days, I really would rather have a Porsche. I told you guys all about this a few weeks ago, but that's neither here nor there because the passage was taken out of context. Lose it. Keep it in context. And what you have is Jesus says, I judge the fig tree, you better believe it. I judge that fig tree for its hypocrisy. And you can too. If you have faith, you will hear what I'm about to say. You will believe what I'm about to say. You might even pray that what I'm about to say happens and you will see it happen. If you have faith, you will say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea. We're done with you. I don't need you anymore. As they're coming from the Mount of Olives down, there's a thing in front of them called the city of Jerusalem. And in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, there is the temple. But the temple doesn't sit at ground level in the middle of Jerusalem. If you remember that Old Testament passage, referred to the temple sitting on the holy mountain. Today it is called the Temple Mount. It is where the temple used to stand. A few years after Jesus says these words, some marauding forces from the Romans come into the city of Jerusalem and tear down the temple. And it has never been rebuilt. And I tell you, just like the judgment of the fig tree, if you believe, you can say to that mountain, we're done with you. Get out of here. Throw yourself into the sea. 
and it will happen. I believe Jesus is declaring judgment on the whole temple scene. He's not saying you can pray for anything you want and God has to do it. He's saying, listen up to what I'm saying. And if you have faith to believe what I'm saying right here, right now about God's judgment on hypocrisy, then you could point at that mountain, this mountain right in front of you, and you could say, we're done with you. And it will happen. Here's why that's scary. The temple was filled with insiders doing insider things for insider reasons and insider purposes. They were following God's will. They were following God's law. They were doing everything they thought was right in the eyes of God and everything that he had said. There was only one thing. They had missed a few little details. One of those details is that they were doing their insidery thing, keeping the outsiders out. And that was the hypocrisy that was enough for Jesus to say, you're a fig tree with no fruit. You're leaves with nothing underneath. You are hypocrites. You are just absolutely playing the religious game. And so I'm done with you. Be withered. And here is the answer. The group of Christians, wherever they may be found, if they are insiders who keep outsiders out, they will wither and face the judgment of God. If they are insiders who invest their energy on bringing the outsiders in, they will, I believe, have the blessing of God. That's who we need to be. As individual people in the way we live our lives, as individual people in the way we do social media or whatever else it is that we're part of, and as a church, we need to be those people who bring the outsiders in. And over these next couple of months, I want us to work at it. I want us in the month of August to dig deep in our prayer and say, God, what is it that is causing me to keep the outsiders out? What is it that is causing me to view myself as an insider, a privileged insider? And where is it that I need to change, that our church needs to change, that we need to somehow be broken down so that the outsiders can be welcomed in? What needs to happen, God? That's what August is about. September is us practicing it, trying to figure out some things that we're going to do. And October is us really getting it done. Because here's the deal. A temple that doesn't let the outsiders in gets thrown into the sea. A fig tree that looks like it's got everything going on right but doesn't bear any fruit, is withered. And both of those things happen from the judgment of a king who says, I will fight the oppressors even if the oppressors are the people who think they're my followers. We got to be people who bring the outsiders in. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.